0: welcome back to the mlb.com ballpark dimensions podcast my name is mike petriello i'm a writer and researcher at mlb.com joined by matt Myers, mlb.com national content editor today is thursday january 19th and this is going to be our last show before the hall of fame election is announced next week so we're obviously going to talk about that we're gonna get into the biggest rule change that no one is actually talking about, and that's the balanced schedule. Get into a little bit of Hunter Green from the Reds, talking about the top 10s at every position, uh, and then finish off with a little bit of interesting Dominican Republic World Baseball Classic talk because their roster looks insane. Matt, first, hello. Um, next Tuesday, January 24th at six o'clock Eastern on MLB Network, we are going to learn who, if anyone, <laughs> gets into the Hall of Fame this year. And obviously, uh, Ryan Thibodeau does a great job with the tracker, so you can kind of look at what's going on right now. And it just seems to me like it's going to be real close. Like, I I can't sit here right now and say, oh, yeah, we're definitely getting guys in. Um, Scott Rowland is at like 80%. You know, Billy Wagner is at like 72%. Todd Helton's at 79%. You need 75% to get in. Fortunately, historically, uh, the people who publicize their ballots tend to be a little more Open to allowing players in than the people who don't. So it almost always goes down. And I guess my biggest concern here is that Roland, who's clearly deserving, is going to miss by the exact amount of the shameful blank ballots that were submitted. That's what's going to happen here. It's going to make everyone mad. It's going to be great.
1: I should start by noting that Fred McGriff is going into the Hall of Fame this summer via the Veterans Committee. So it will not be, you know, we're not at risk of a. Blank elect, blank blank election for players this year. Fred McGriff is going in, but yes, from the the Baseball Writers Association ballot, it does look like Scott Rowland's the only one who has a chance because no one ever like goes up meaningfully between the public and private ballots. And you know, I think he's probably going to fall short. I was just looking at this, right? So he's he's about eighty percent. He needs to be on seven uh, on the public ballots that are out. He needs to be on seventy two percent of the private ballots to clear the 75% threshold. Last year, he was on just 45% of private ballots. So my guess is he probably makes a little bit up there because usually these players see surges, but that feels like a pretty big gap to make up. And my guess is Roland falls a little bit short. Um, But I don't know, what's what's your take?
0: um, I think he's going to miss it. And I think it's going to be disappointing, but it's going to be okay because then he'll get it next year. Like I think if he gets as close, he'll get it next year. I I kind of want to register a complaint here. So Jeff Kent is in his final year on the ballot. He is up 26 votes uh, just based on, on returning voters, guys who were voting last year and this year. And I think some of that is because it's his final year and you get a final year bump and that's fine. But I also think some of that is because... In previous years, you know, you had the PED guy logjam, you have Bonds and Clemens and McGuire and all this, Kurt Schilling, not PED, but was there too. And I feel like he was always, Jeff Kent was like the 12th or 13th best guy on the ballot and people didn't have room for him because you're only allowed to do 10. And I'm sure I've complained about the max of 10 on the show, uh, maybe 100 different times <laughs> <laughs> because it is stupid. And I think this kind of shows it, right? There are people who would have wanted to vote for Jeff Kent but just couldn't find room. And I say this as someone who wouldn't vote for Jeff Kent. If someone's a Hall of Famer, give them the respect of a yes or no vote.
1: Why Why is this complicated? <laughs> why do I have to make everything so hard? Um, I think I think it's a, a legitimate point that you make. But, you know, speaking of the guys who have a chance of getting in on the, the writers' ballot, at least not this year, Roland, to be clear, is going to be making a big jump from last year and is on the precipice. As you said, he will probably get in next year. And then there are a few other players who are making pretty big gains who've been on the ballot before. Todd Helton is already up plus 28 votes um, in his fifth year on the ballot. Billy Wagner is up plus 26 votes on his eighth year on the ballot. Um, Andrew Jones is up 22 votes on his sixth year on the ballot. These are all guys who seem to be trending towards election at some point in the next few years. And then the other notable name on the ballot this year for the first time is Carlos Beltran, who no one really expected to get get in this year because there was this kind of feeling that he would get at least some sort of penalty for his involvement in the sign stealing scandal with the Astros, but the fact that he's at 56% will probably end up close to 50% in his first year makes it clear to me he will get into the Hall of Fame eventually, as he should. I mean, Carlos Beltran at his peak, in my opinion, um, was an all-time great player and had a great career and should be in the Hall of Fame, and he's one of the players who I look at when I think of it. we could talk about when we get to vote in a few years. There's a chance... He might be still on the ballot when I get to vote, but I think probably not. I think he will probably already be in the Hall of Fame by the time I get to vote after the 2027 season.
0: Well, since you brought it up, your your first ballot guys are going to be so much cooler than my first ballot guys. Right? Matt and I are staggered. Our entrances into the BBWA are two years apart. Right? So I will get in – I will get my first vote – um, after the 2025 season. So the class of 2026, Matt is two years after me. So Matt is going to get the guys who've just finished up their final season last year. Well, that's Albert Pujols. That's Yadier Molina. It might be Zach Ranke, depending on whether he ends up playing this year or not. It's going to be pretty cool. Here's who I'm going to get. I'm going to get the guys who retired at the end of the 2020 season. And there's some interesting names here, for sure. But it's like Cole Hamels. Maybe not, because he still wants to play this year. So he might not even count. And then it's like, Ryan Braun, uh, Alex Gordon, Nick Markakis, Matt Kemp, like definitely interesting guys, but I don't think I'm going to get a single new Hall of Famer when it's my turn. I will probably have, you know, Alex Rodriguez will be kicking around, maybe rolling at some point, Chase Utley, but these are all guys who will be there for multiple years, um, up but that that's not going to be as exciting as I think I wanted it to be. And you are going to have a very exciting one. I am very jealous you, of you
1: right now. You, you, I think if I am if I am just eyeballing it, I think you are a good chance. You you could be the Todd Helton year. That's or the Andrew Jones year. That's that could be the year where they finally build up the uh, the momentum to to get in based on the way they're pacing. But they may have already gotten there by then. Um, but uh, that's that's what it's kind of looking at for right now.
0: I just hope I hope Rollin gets in before I have to vote for him. I mean, I want to vote for him. I I feel like he should get in because, you know, I mean, his case is well known, but third base where he played, and and by the way, he played every single game of his career at third base, which is a huge rarity, is so underrepresented in the Hall of Fame. And I kind of half knew this, but I don't think I realized the extent of it until um, our colleague Andrew Simon asked me to to look into it. (laughs) And I, I wrote about this for the site. So here's a question for you. I assume you probably read the piece, but maybe you didn't read it that closely. There is exactly one third baseman in the Hall of Fame who was born since man walked on the moon. One. Do you know who that is? Chipper Jones? Chipper Jones. That's right. He was born in 1972. The Hall of Fame uh, website lists like how many players at each position are in, so they say there's 17 third basemen in the Hall, and that is the fewest uh, of any regular position group, not counting dh here but i even that number i don't buy because i like to do it and some of those guys are like they just do it based on where you played your most games so uh freddie lindstrom is listed as a third baseman if you don't remember him he played you know way 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 long time ago but he never played third base after age 24 and because he only played until he was 30 that's his position that doesn't really count to me uh so i went and i looked and if you just look at the uh the game's where Hall of Famers played. I don't care about their primary position, just like where do they play their games because a lot of guys switched around. First base and right field have nearly 40,000 games apiece by Hall of Famers. And third base is at 29,000. And it's interesting. But then the more I looked into it, uh, first I was like, okay, well, all the voters over the years have a real grudge against third basemen. And then I kind of thought about it and I'm like, you know, who is really being left out right now and the first number i go for this sort of thing it's not wins above replacement i look at the jaws metric so our friend jay jaffe has a version of wins above replacement that's really just like finely tuned for hall of fame comparison it's like the entire point of it and if i looked at that list and i looked at the top 13 third baseman of all time by jaws uh 11 of them are in one of them is adrian Beltre, who's definitely getting in when he's eligible and the third one is 13th one is scott Rowland, <laughs> who should be in And am I going to lose any sleep that Greg Nettles and Ken Boyer are not in the Hall of Fame? I'm not. And I guess what this means is that uh, we should be putting in more third basemen when they become, you know, prominent enough. And I think the third base position, like right now, is probably better than it's ever been in history. So put in Roland, put in Beltrace soon, and then in a while, like 15 years from now, we'll get into Arenado and Machado and all these guys. I just, I feel like... We should not ignore third base as much as we seem to.
1: It makes me wonder, just like I think they're probably. It seems like some of the, the the players had that kind of role. The players you mentioned, the Ken Boyers, the Greg Dentals, had that sort of role-in case where it was a subtle case based on sort of great defense, good offensive numbers, longevity. That isn't always one that that kind of hits you over the head. And you, you know, when the players playing, they don't necessarily pass the pass the eye test, for lack of a better term, while they are while while they're playing, even if they're putting together like an actual Hall of Fame resume. So you, you said you would vote for Roland. Yes. If you were voting this year, what's your ballot? How many people are you voting for?
0: Six and a half, I think. <laughs> right? Because here, here's my six. I would vote for Roland. I would vote for Bobby Abreu. Um, I think he's comparable to Tony Gwynn in a lot of ways that annoy a lot of people. I would vote for Todd Helton, because I think the chorus factor is, is overestimated. I would vote for Carlos Beltron. I would vote for Gary Sheffield. And I would vote for Billy Wagner. I'm slightly uncomfortable with voting for Billy Wagner, just in the sense that I'm uncomfortable in treating relievers differently, because I would certainly if I was building a team, would I want Billy Wagner or, you know, I don't know, a, a good but not elite Hall of Fame starting pitcher? Like when I take Billy Wagner or Bartolo Cologne, hey, I might Take Bartolo Colon, I don't know. But since we seem to be treating relievers differently, he's better than Trevor Hoffman, in my view, because I don't care about saves. So Roland Abreu-Helton, Beltron, Sheffield, Wagner. My half is Andrew Jones, which we can talk about a little more in a second after you tell me who you'd vote for. I, I, I'm like so on the line about him, but that's where I land. What about you?
1: Um, well, I, I sort of did it. I kind of I picked 10 names. And I'm not sure if I were voting, I would actually pick, but like I, I'd be on the fence on 10 and I put them in, in tiers and there's two of my top tier that you didn't mention. And I'm curious, like, so for me on the ballot that are, would be, would be automatics are Alex Rodriguez, Carlos Beltran, and Manny Ramirez. Are you just out on, are you, a, are you Manny and A-Rod failed tests? We, I, I don't want them in the hall of fame. Is that your, is that your stance on them?
0: listen i would have voted for bonds and clements so i'm certainly not someone who says oh the hall of fame is perfectly clean and we should never let those guys in no i would have voted for bonds and Clemens. uh and to go back to jay jaffe i think i really like his approach of nobody really seemed to care about this before like 2003 right the league wasn't testing that much a lot of the players union was against it like nobody cared like wild west and then we started to have rules and then manny Uh, ramirez got suspended and alex rodriguez got suspended and i'm not saying i would never put them in but i am i'm that's a good line for me to draw i feel like at some point before they expire off the ballot i probably would vote for them but if you're asking me why right now i think
1: that's why that's i mean i think it's i think it's a, a a reasonable take but i would i would check i would check the box for them i think that like they were you know Ramirez was an inner circle, all-time great hitter, and Alex Rodriguez obviously was an all-time great all-around player, legitimately, you know, maybe one of the 10, 15 best players ever, um, if you're looking at it, you know, objectively. And then I've got this this mid-tier, and I've always been, I've always felt like I was, you know, the the, the mayor of Bobby Abreu Island, so, like, I kind of feel like I would have to, (laughs) have to check the box for him, if like, I mean, if you're checking a box for Bobby Abreu, I've got to check the box. For, for Bobby Abreu, and I mean, in some ways, it's it's similar to someone like Roland, where when he was playing for the bulk of his career, there probably wasn't this like, oh my goodness, this guy we're watching a future Hall of Famer right now. And I I don't think that's the only way to judge someone, but it's kind of like you do look. You know, Scott Roland had one top ten MVP, one Rookie of the Year, and he had one top ten MVP finish. Like that's a pretty quick and dirty way to say like when he was when when he was playing, there was not this like. Oh my goodness! This guy is super duper star.
0: I'm I'm tossing some of that out because I I agree with you. Some of it's the Hall of Fame, right? Fame in his time. I got to throw some of that stuff out because how many of these All Star games and MVP finishes were like, oh, this guy hit three thirty, right? Like I, I shouldn't have to rely on the evaluations of writers from fifty years ago in that.
1: But 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 still, like I mean, like it tells you something about how he was perceived, and like literally, he had he finished he got MVP votes in one. To three seasons of a 17-year, sorry, four seasons of a 17-year career. Like I'm just like it doesn't mean he's not a Hall of Famer. I think there's different. I think Hall of Famers come in different shapes and sizes. But a Braves the same thing. where, like when they were playing, and this was also a time when, admittedly, when sabermetrics was you know getting taking taking a foothold. And there were a lot of things that some of these players did that maybe weren't fully appreciated in the moment. That with the benefit of hindsight, like you know I've said this before in this podcast. If you like look at like. Bobby Abreu's 1999 season now when he was like, you know, 330, 450, 550 with like 30 homers and 40 steals or something like he would have finished higher than I think it was, you know, 26th or something in MVP voting. So I recognize that how we evaluate players has changes. But I think Roland and, and Abreu were kind of similar in that realm where like they they were putting together like these really amazing careers, but kind of in a way that wasn't hitting you over the head. Whereas like someone like Andrew Jones was widely considered the best defensive outfielder and part of all these winning teams and sort of had the trappings of a Hall of Fame player, even if like he was way more inconsistent as a performer. Anyway, so my middle, my top tier, A-Rod, Beltran, Manny, would be definite for me. My next tier, who all I probably would vote for, would be Abreu, Roland, Andrew Jones, Gary Sheffield, and Todd Helton. And then the last two of the 10 for me would be Jeff Kent and Andy Pettit. Um, I think that Pettit the postseason obviously he got to play for the Yankees but like the body of work of the extended postseason like there's there's a lot to build on there I would put him in above Billy Wagner but I would I would hedge on Kent and Pettit I'm not sure I would check the box next to them.
0: Yeah I just don't think Kent has that strong of a case uh In my eyes, I know people look at the home runs, and that's fine. But I super borderline for me. I did want to talk about Jones for a minute because I I keep going back and forth on him. And let me tell you the two sides of this argument. I I was reading something about him the other day that pointed out from 1998 to 2006, uh, in terms of wins above replacement, only A Rod and Barry Bonds were more valuable than he was, which is pretty compelling. And a lot of that was about defensive value. And then I thought, you know. Well, defensive metrics, you know, even now we're kind of squishy. Like how much, how much were we putting in a defensive metrics from years and years ago? So I went and I looked in the divisional era since 1969. You can go look it up on Baseball Reference and they have uh, defensive metrics there. And I'm not going to get into how like all the old ones are are calculated, but they're there. And I just wanted to say like, how much of the smell test are these passing? Well, since 1969, number one, they have Ozzie Smith, just in defensive value. Cool. Number two is Andre Jones. And if you look at the rest of the top seven here, uh, Adrian Beltre, Mark Belanger, Andrelton Simmons, Cal Ripken, Scott Rowland, Nolan Arenado tied for 11th, Kevin Kiermaier tied for 15th. There's something there, I think. So that that says a lot. By the way, the three names at the bottom: Adam Dunn, Gary Sheffield, Derek Jeter. Okay, we'll move on from that point. So like, that's an argument in his favor. I can I have a hard time getting past how he stopped being a good player at like age 29 like the drop it wasn't like oh he dropped off to okay he just dropped off the face of the planet and i actually do think some of his good years were overrated in some sense let me let me drop this one on you matt 2001 he's 24 years old he had 34 homers he had 104 rbis and he had a 94 ops plus that's partially because the environment of the time was like crazy offense that's why i'm on I'm, i'm borderline on this like Arguably the best defensive center fielder all time, who hit 434 home runs, like that, that probably should be a Hall of Famer. But the fact that he disappeared, and I certainly don't love the off-field domestic violence accusations, like I, like I said, I could go either way here.
1: Um, I think that's all that's all fair, and I think that he's. I put him in my tier. I'd probably check a box next to, but um, he he might even be on that the the Pettit uh, Kent tier for me, but. Um, I'm generally more inclusive when I vote um, because, I, as we've talked about in the past, I feel like modern players beyond just third base in general are underrepresented relative to players who played in the early 20th century. And so I think that like sometimes we underrate the current players because we hold them up against the standard of like, oh well, you know, could he? You know, he? You know, is he? Who could? is he really better than Joe Medwick? And it's like, well, I don't know. He was like the best center fielder for 15 years, you know. Like, so um, is he better than this guy who was born during the Civil War? I mean, obviously, I mean, even relative. My point is, even relative to their peers, even like obviously, he's obviously better. Like, if you like put him in a time machine, he would dominate 1930s baseball. But even just like relative to his peers, as someone who stands as like one of the best players of you know a top you know top two percentile, you know, if you argue that like the top two percent of every every of all players should make the Hall of Fame or top one percent, like of his peers, he probably was in that whatever that tier was, or on the or at worst on the borderline.
0: All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about one of the most interesting changes for the upcoming season that not enough people are talking about. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We move into our three batter minimum segment where we talk about three interesting topics of the week. And when you look ahead to baseball in 2023, like I think I'm more excited about this season than I've been for any season in a really long time because there's so much that changed to look at, right? The pitch timer, the ban on shifts, the larger bases, the pickoff limitation, all of that. And yet no one seems to be talking about the other big change, which is that there's a balanced schedule. All right For the first time since an early play came into being in 1997, they've balanced everything. So uh, teams are not going to play nearly as many games inside the division, which is like a great boon for someone who is sick of watching, I don't know, Tigers Royals 19 times a year. Now you get to see all sorts of other stuff. And there's, there's two really good reasons for this. One is because... It makes it a lot fairer for the wildcard teams in different divisions, right? So, for example, in the East, in the American League, Toronto, Tampa, and Baltimore, for years and years, have had about 25% of their schedule coming against the Yankees and the Red Sox. Well, the American League wildcard teams in the other divisions haven't had to deal with that. This makes it a little bit fairer. And the other thing, which I think is, is a really cool idea is it gets your superstars to more places more often so every team will play every team every year they won't visit every city every year but it'll be at least every other year and that's not the way it is now for example shohei otani has still not visited five different places he's never played against the mets in new york in chicago against the cubs in pittsburgh washington or milwaukee one caveat the angels did visit the cubs a couple years ago but he was hurt fine whatever but I, i like that idea uh and that's that's all great from like a fairness and PR sense. And it's more interesting to me, like wh- who's going to help this year? Like what teams are going to matter? But like before we get into that, are you in favor of this? Like We just don't talk about this as much as the other ones.
1: Um, yes, and I totally agree with your point that it's kind of going out of the radar because sort of understandably, there's way more focus on the pitch clock and the shift restrictions because that will have a bigger... A bigger, probably a no, more noticeable effect on the game you watch on a day-to-day basis. But this will have a, a more subtle effect over the course of 162 games and really could have a huge impact on the on the uh on the standings at the end of the year. I mean, I'd say like maybe the one counterpoint is like maybe it it's it certain maybe it helps teams, like the 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 East teams more than it helps the central teams, and maybe that's not a bad thing, but like I d I don't know. It kind of depends how you you when you looked into it, what did you find?
0: Uh, I did find that, unsurprisingly, it would help the American League East teams, and I think that's what people are expecting to happen here. So the way I did this was I took uh, the upcoming schedule, like I got the grid of who who everybody's going to play when and where, and I compared it not to last year, I compared it to what it would have been this year, right, where you have like the rotating divisional thing, and you know I, that. that injects a little bit of uncertainty into it and that it just so happens that this division plays this division this year and that might not have been the same the next year but anyway that's that's what the year would have been and then i got the projected winning percentages from fan and do all sorts of spreadsheet math and you come up with the teams who are going to benefit and not and the the divisions the really the two divisions i think will benefit the most from this the american league east and the american league west and i think that's makes a lot of sense like if you're an east team you get to say great i don't have to play like all these beasts there's five competitive teams now in the east depending on how you feel about baltimore and boston um so to give you an example the blue jays they get to take away 24 games that they would have played against their american league east partners and now this year um they get to play against the nl central which isn't very good and the nl east of which two of the teams aren't very good Like that's, that is huge for Toronto, right? So I think the East and the West works out like that. The Central's, it just didn't really matter that much. I mean, none of those teams are great to begin with. Uh, And it actually, I found this really fascinating. It hurts the NL East teams a little bit. And the reason for that is they don't get to play the Marlins and the Nationals as much, right? So like the Mets won 27 of 38 against the Marlins and Nationals. That's, that's great for them. Well, now they have to play the American League East. That's a problem. So like if I'm the Diamondbacks, for example, I think I'm really happy with this. Cause like I'm not gonna win the division. But maybe now one of the NLE's teams might not get that wild card
1: slot. Like that's cool. Yeah, I think I'm I'm all for this for all the reasons you mentioned. Um It'll be interesting to see kind of how it plays out. But honestly, more than anything, just as a fan, as you said, like, some of these matchups just kind of get tiresome. And it's fun to see different teams. And, you know, it's like seeing a different—like, just a, like as a longtime baseball fan, seeing a different uniform in a different place, you're not used to to seeing it, is just cool. And, like, once we kind of ripped the Band-Aid off and didn't really play, it's like we might as well go all in. And, you know, seeing Otani, like, in pitching in Milwaukee for the first time, it's like, oh, cool, that's— that's different. Like I don't need another Angels A's game, right? Like so, this is this is this is good for the I think for the entertainment and sort of making the stars more national.
0: Yeah, I've only heard two decent arguments against it, and one I don't agree with at all. Uh, the one argument against it I've heard, which is kind of true is that it increases travel a little bit, right? There's like 7% more travel and that doesn't affect every team equally. So, you know, that's fair. The one argument I've heard against it that I just, I can't get on board with, and I think this is very generational, is that it blurs the lines between the leagues a little bit more because there's a lot more interleague inner play than there was before. And I think that's true, but I'm also thinking about this. I mean, I was I was born in 1981 and I don't care about this. And I feel like, I don't know anybody who was born after 1970 probably doesn't worry about the difference in the leagues that much. Like, yeah, there was there was some charm and there was different league offices and the umpires said AL and NL. I I get it. I I just I can't get worked up over that,
1: right? Like, and also, I mean, we have the universal DH now, right? So like, that's out the window. And I mean, anyone who's a sports fan, th- this is how the NFL and NBA operate, right? Like, where they have two distinct conferences or or you know two distinct conferences but you play interchangeably the teams. You I mean, you play the teams in your conference more or your division more, but you still play everyone. In the NBA, you play every team at least twice. In the NFL, they cycle through everyone. So I just think that's, I don't think it's a big deal. The travel thing is interesting, especially I think the, the AL West has it worst in travel, generally speaking, because the Mariners and then also the two Texas teams, it's by far the most like, you know, the spread out division. So I am curious to see in year one, how the AL West teams do relative to projections, and if we see like a little bit more underperformance, I think that's actually something worth monitoring. I, don't, I think I think these, this schedule is here to stay for at least a few years, so there's nothing to really do about it. But I'm curious to see that could actually have a tangible impact, and that's that's a it's a fair observation.
0: I actually have the schedule in front of me, the travel schedule. It's the Giants who add the most this huh. year, and I think part of that is they're going to Mexico City for games, so that that hurts too. But I, I do think the flip side of that is there are either fewer. Or zero of like the three city thirteen day trips that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that everybody like. I think they they're like okay we won't do that. Um, one last thing I wanted to I wanted to mention about this before we move on. And I'm trying to look it up real fast because I want to get it right. But it was super interesting. Okay, uh, just terms in terms of talking about getting the stars everywhere. Um, here's a trivia question for you. Jackie Robinson. Do you know how many Major League stadiums he played in in his entire career after he came to the Dodgers in 1947? a lot of silence. 10. Ten. Whoa, wow. It's actually 11 if you count Yankee Stadium in the in the World Series. But that's it. And one of those one of those is a huge caveat because um right before the Dodgers left Brooklyn for LA, they played a couple of games in Jersey City just to kind of like, you know, rattle everyone's cages in Brooklyn's for Brooklyn for a new park. So he played six games there. But yeah, he only played in 10 stadiums and one extra in the World Series. And that's it. And it's like I know we have more teams now, obviously it wouldn't be the same today. We have superstars. Let's let's get them to places. Like you, you and I both take our kids to Mets games. I, let's have Shohei Otani and Mike Trout be there. <laughs> like that would be cool. All right, all right. Next topic: uh, Hunter Green. We don't talk about the Reds that much, and Hunter Green is a is a really interesting young player because he's an absolute flamethrower He throws pretty much as hard as any starter ever has. I think that's fair to say. And yet the, the fastball last year was like surprisingly hittable. You wouldn't think a guy who can touch, you know, like 104 would get his fastball turned around, but that is basically what happened because guys realized, you know, didn't have like a deep arsenal of pitches and the fastball, while it's good, it was a little bit straight. And so, you know, he had a 444 ERA and not a great year, um, but, it, you know, you shared with me an article that I think David Adler wrote that really showed like all the stuff that that Hunter Green is doing to to improve Just beyond being the guy with a huge fastball, and I think that's like a potentially really cool bright spot for you know a a Reds team maybe on the march back to contention.
1: Yeah, I mean it was almost like three seasons for Hunter Green last year, and so David Adler did a piece for MLB.com that caught my eye, basically saying like, look out for Hunter Green in 2023. Um, You know, when he debuted, he had the hard fastball, but actually it was his slider that was his best pitch for the first couple first first like month or so. So we really. Went all in on the slider and really struggled in May and June, like going heavy on the slider. And then, in the second half of the season, he really went back to his fastball. Um, and it was like a it was like a light bulb moment where suddenly he was not just he was not just throwing his fastball. He was throwing his fastball harder, as David uh, outlines, and he was throwing it more up in the zone and really dominated down the stretch. In his final four starts of the season, one against each of the Reds' four division opponents, he posted an. ERA with 14.5 strikeouts per nine innings. And then his four-seam fastball averaged 99.8 miles per hour in September and October. Not just his highest for any month, but the highest by any starting pitcher in any month of the 2022 season, ahead of the 99.3 miles per hour by Jacob deGrom averaged in August. Nearly half the fastballs. Hold on. on.
0: Not just of 2022. That's the highest of any month we have pitch tracking for. And that probably means any month ever.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's, it's kind I mean, like, you know, you, you wonder if a pitcher this early in his career can just, can take the Jacob deGrom starter kit and just be like, you know what, I'm just throwing fastballs and sliders, you know, and just go, you know, usually a starter, oh, you need, you need, you need at least a third pitch and Hunter Green like dabbles in a changeup. But like when you throw a hundred regularly and you have this nasty slider, the guy could be electric. He was amazing down the stretch. He is I think one of like, I, there's no player maybe in baseball I'm rooting more for this year than Hunter Green. I don't know if you saw last weekend, he was at the Dream Series, which is an MLB event uh, organized over Martin Luther King weekend every year, um, to, aligned with uh, what's what it's called the Dream Series and the I a dream speech. You know, they invite the top black and Latino players, uh, high school players in the United States to a camp where they have a bunch of former major league managers and players, Jerry Manuel, Harry Kendrick was there. they there. Like, Dozens more whose names I'm forgetting. I just happen to see them, you know, talk being interviewed. And Hunter Green was there as well. He lives in Phoenix. He invited all the players to his house. He like gave them a pep talk. He got them Nike cleats. Like, he is a great ambassador for the game. He is a, an exciting talent. I'm so hoping that that Hunter Green can like take that step next year. I mean, the Steamer projections have him as one of the top 25 pitchers in baseball next year. So like, this is. He's, if, I mean, if you're a Reds fan, like this is the guy to get excited about. If you're a baseball fan, this is the guy to get excited about.
0: By the way, the, with the Dream Series thing, he invited them to his house and got a taco truck in his backyard and said, "Hey, everybody, we're going to play be the Show." And if you ever need any help on your on your path, like call me. Which I agree with you is super cool. I did see the Steamer projections, and I was I was shocked. You know, projected for 200 plus strikeouts um, for a guy who, like I said, had kind of an up and down season. And I I don't think I could say he's a top 25 pitcher or starter in baseball right now. I think that's just cuz there's so many other good starters. Like it would take me about 5 seconds to name 25 really good starters without any research. But I do think if you look at the Reds, I mean they're they're, they're in a weird spot, right? They're not going to be very good this year. But if Hunter Green is the real deal and Nick Lodolo is the is the real deal. And then if you look at the um, you know, their farm system, they have one of the most exciting prospects in baseball uh, in Ellie De La Cruz who's not That far away? Noel V. Marte, who they got from Seattle in the Luis Castillo trade, like not that far away. It's hard for me to see them finishing, I guess, the Pirates or higher than fourth this upcoming year. But, you know, Ladole is young, Green is young. I like Graham Ashcraft. You know, starting pitching thins out pretty quickly after that. It could be at least interesting. And I think you're right. Like, if you if you like baseball and you want to see a guy with Really like an interesting elite skill set who seems to be an incredibly good person off the field like Team Hunter Green like how could you not be rooting for that? All right, our final topic of our three batter minimum every year at around this time and I can't believe this is year nine for me. uh we go over to MLB Network and we do the top ten right now position, which uh, for the last couple of years has been me, um, Finch denaro of Saber and our friend sour Langs, and we've had a really good time doing that even though we're all mad at Carlos Correa for making us go back and redo the third base and shortstop ones. Thank you for that. Messed up all of our lists. And uh, those have been airing a couple nights a week. Tonight, uh, January 19th will be the third base one. Next week, you'll have second base shortstop, starting pitcher, and catcher. And I've been doing this for long enough now that I did want to go. I I dug up my first list that I did here, Matt, 2015. Here are my top 10s from that year. Uh, Robinson Cano was my top 10-second baseman that year. Alex Gordon was my top 10 left field. Like That's how long this has been going on. But I bring that up to say this. There were two guys who I had as a top 10 at their position in 2015, who I still have as a top 10 Oh, close. I guess one of them like number two in 2023. Do you know who those are? One's easy. Mike Trout. One's Mike Trout. That's right. Uh, uh, Nolan Arenado? No. Right team, though. Um, right team, though. Paul Goldschmidt. that's right, which I, I think shows you a little bit about uh, the value not only of greatness but also durability, and which is why both of those guys are obviously going to be in the Hall of Fame. So here's my favorite thing about doing these. Um, you know, I usually do them like over Christmas break, which is nice because at that point it's like, oh yeah, I, have, I haven't thought about you know anybody from the Diamondbacks in a while. So let's let's remember them, those guys, and I I do a lot of the research and we you know, use it over the course of the season and. Every year, team uh, you know some fan bases always get mad that their guys aren't on the top ten, and I think part of that is because once you get to like number seven on a list, number seven to fourteen or so, depending on the position, is essentially a toss-up. <laughs> you know, it's like we got get a little bit too caught up in the binary on/off of these lists. Um, we haven't gotten to the one that I think is going to make everybody really mad. They have not aired the starting pitcher list yet. Do you think? F- Everyone's going to get upset when they see that I have Aaron Nola ranked above Sandy Alcantara. Let me, let me, before you answer that, this is not a recap of 2022. It is looking ahead to the 2023 season. That's what makes it fun.
1: Uh, well, now, now I'm going to have to watch the starting pitcher show and really see see the <laughs> see the uh, the big plan. And just for those who are unfamiliar with the show, there's like so Mike and and Sarah and whomever does their their own top 10, but then there are also the official MLB top 10 right now, which is done by, which is put together by the quote unquote, sh- by the shredder, which is the sort of the, an, a, a statistical formula based on the previous two seasons, I believe is, 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 uh, how it's done. Uh, so, the, yeah. the list, mm-hmm. so the list you see on the show is the shredder. And then they have Mike and Sarah on to kind of do their own top 10 and see how it compares to this, this, uh, this algorithm. And it's always fun to see people on Twitter yell at Mike when his, he always has one or two fun ones that deviate wildly from, uh, from the uh, the shredder and the conventional wisdom, which is part of the fun, right? You want if it's if everyone had the same list, it would be boring. So I always like when you have the ones that kind of stand out.
0: Yeah, what I try to do—I don't always do this. It sort of depends on the position, but what I like to do sometimes for the number ten spot, unless there's like an obvious guy, like I have to have on. I don't do this for starting pitcher because there's too many of them. But at some positions, I will maybe go with the guy who isn't necessarily number ten. But as someone who I think could have like a huge breakout that I want to be riding on, and I want to tell you two of the names I I did for that um, in center field, I had Corby Carroll on my list, who is uh, you know from Arizona, and I, I don't think people realized how good he was. I mean, he's a top draft pick. I, pedigree matters too because if a, a guy a rookie has like a great month, I want to know is he like a flash in the pan or someone we expected to be this good? And Corby Carroll like checks all those boxes. Uh, the other name I had, uh, Gunnar Henderson. I put a number 10 on my third base list. And to go back to projections for a minute, I couldn't believe how well his projections came out. Like Steamer and Zips have him as like a four-win player (laughs) next year. I don't know if I'm ready for that, but it it made me put him on over to Brian Hayes or Eugenio Suarez or or Brian McMahon like or DJ LeMayhew. I was was comfortable doing that because I'd rather be a year too early um, than a year too late. And to that end, I do want to shout out Sarah for a second. Because she put some on her her reliever list that I thought about it. And I'm like, I just don't have the guts to do this. And then she put them on like sixth. I was like, I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Brian Abreu from the Houston Astros, who is like, I don't know the sixth most famous guy in his own bullpen or whatever. But I don't think there is anybody who impressed me more like last postseason than Brian Abreu, who nobody knows who he is, but you watch him and you're like, this is literally unhittable filth. Nobody can touch this. And she did it. I think Vince might've done it too. And I was like, I'm so jealous of you guys doing that. And that's the fun stuff. Like I could have put, I don't know, Evan Phillips because he had a 112 ERA. That's no fun. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to have fun here. Who, is, there, is there a young name that you would have wanted to put on any of these lists? Have you done them?
1: Uh, off the top of my head, no, but I love that you did Corbin Carroll because I think that like his game will play so well in that park. He's got that like kind of like slasher, gap-to-gap, super speed. Uh, Chase Field has got like not only big gaps, it's got weird stuff going down the line. I just feel like lots of triples, lots of extra bases for him. I'm really excited to see him play this year.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to finish up with some really interesting news about the World Baseball Classic. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Um, we're starting to look ahead to not only spring training, but to the World Baseball Classic. And there's going to be a lot. There's there's not finalized rosters yet. We're starting to get a look at some preliminary rosters. And it's going to be really cool to see once we have the final ones, like which teams are going to stand out. I saw I saw a preliminary roster for the Dominican Republic. And oh my God, my eyes about fell out of my head. This is like a 140 win team <laughs> In the regular season, I think, uh, can I just, I, I took this like list and I kind of made up like, oh, here's what I think, you know, the starting lineup would be. I'm just going to read them off to you. Here's what I would do if I had this collection of 50 players. Uh, again, it's a 50-man preliminary roster, the final roster of 28. Here's here's what my Dominican roster would be of these guys who've expressed some interest. Gary Sanchez would catch, uh, fine, whatever. Uh, Vlad Jr. at first, Jose Ramirez at second. Uh, Jeremy Pena at short, Manny Machado at third, an outfield of Juan Soto, Julio Rodriguez, Starling Marte. Rafael Devers is my DH. Here's my bench. Eloy Jimenez, William Adames, Wander Franco, Jorge Polanco, Teoscar Hernandez, find a catcher. And that means the guys who didn't make my team, Jose Siri, Catel Marte, Manny Margot, John Segura, Carlos Santana, and the team's GM, Nelson Cruz. Can you imagine an outfield? With Soto, Rodriguez, and Marte, and all the other guys I got. I didn't even get into the pitching yet. I didn't even get there. This is the, going to be the greatest roster I think I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing with WBC rosters, right, it's always kind of fluid. So it's never official until, like, they actually take the field. But, like, you see the names, you see the potential, and it's it it kind of harkens back to the original. I mean, Team USA is going to be stacked two. Don't get me wrong, Team Puerto Rico will be excellent, but the Dominican team was like another level. Almost like, almost feels like the original uh, basketball dream team. It's like that, like that level of stardom. You know, w- with with uh, Gary Sanchez, maybe like the Christian Leitner of the bunch, where everyone else is like future Hall of Famer, incredible. And the thing about the the, the Dominican team this year is that I think that like the pitching actually is legit. I think that, generally speaking, historically, the Dominican Republic, for as much talent as it's produced, it's produced a few great pitchers, but nowhere near the same level as it has for position players, but it seems like Sandy Alcantara is gonna pitch, and like what's super cool about that is they're playing their games in Miami, so he's playing in his home park, and like since he's been on the Marlins, that place has never really rocked, so he's gonna be playing in his home park, those games in that pool where there's gonna be Puerto Rico venezuela uh team israel and nicaragua i think um no nicaragua yeah, yeah. um but those games the, the games against puerto rico and venezuela are just going to be madness and you'll have sandy on the mound and will probably be a packed stadium his home stadium which is also also cool you might get Framer valdez as your number two starter like this team has the lineup and the pitching hey you know it's tournament baseball i'm not saying uh Dominicans are going to win because like there's so much that could happen but the, the roster the the star power on the roster is incredible
0: I've never been to that ballpark and now I'm like half considering just like road tripping there to go watch one of these games Here, here's the pitching staff by the way uh I think it might be a three-man rotation makes sense and no one's going to go like eight innings anyway so whatever but yeah Sandy Alcantara from Valdez and Freddie Peralta might be the starting rotation here's my eight-man bullpen all right Camilo Duvall, who's great. Joan Duran, who's awesome. Uh, Christian Javier, who is a great starter, but can work out of the bullpen. Felix Bautista, our man Brian Abreu, who we just talked about. Sir Anthony Dominguez, Hector Neris; and Johnny Cueto, who I don't actually think is like the best pitcher of the remaining guys, but I don't know if you saw this. He got introduced today uh, at the ballpark after signing with the Marlins. He went out to the mound, draped in a Dominican flag. It's an empty ballpark, right? And he's out there dancing with the flag wrapped around him. It was, an, like, it was an awesome sight. He is going to be so much fun in that ballpark. I'm not going to read off all the names who didn't make like my potential list here of this uh, provisionary list, but just a couple of them: Diego Castillo, not good enough to make this team. Uh, mm-hmm. Edward Cabrera, no, no.
1: Luis Garcia, Rafael Montero, nope, nope. Alex Colome, well, nope. Mike, <laughs> well, let's wait and see. You know, the final the final roster could include some of these guys. Doesn't matter. They they will be stacked. You know these guys are all. You can make an argument for I'm almost many of these guys to be in this bullpen or in this roster in this lineup. It is going to be a fun team. I think the 2017 World Baseball Classic really took the event to like a new level. Where there were some like really amazing games and there's a lot more excitement. I think a lot more of the star play as a result of that. A lot more of the star players are participating this year, and I'm really really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, and to be clear, the only one I've really looked at is the Dominican. I'm sure when the American rosters come out, we'll be like, oh yeah, Pete is going to hit behind Mike Trout. That That's cool. I'd watch that when the Puerto Rico roster comes out. Uh, hey, imagine if uh, Carlos Correa played third base next to Francisco Lindor at shortstop. What might that be like? Imagine if that ever happened in the big leagues. Nope, that that couldn't happen. So I am really excited about that. I would imagine that over the upcoming weeks, we will learn a little bit more about that. And by the time we talk next week, we will know who's going to be elected to the Hall of Fame. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.